Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi, Big Fish listeners. I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Nicole Cox of On Track. She brings a really interesting background from 20 years of staffing and RPO and is now leading a corporate talent acquisition team for the first time in her career. And you're going to love her insights. But before we get to that, a quick word about our sponsor, ATAP. ATAP is the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals, in case you didn't know that. And it's really the only global member-driven not-for-profit that represents all of talent acquisition. I actually joined as a charter member several years ago because I just didn't see any other professional associations recognizing the globality of recruiting at the time. And given my experience, that's really important to me. Membership gives you access to webinars, original research, conference discounts, and a curated body of knowledge, including their professional code of recruiting integrity. They also advocate on behalf of our profession and foster an inclusive online community. So if you're not already a member, I would get right on that at atapglobal.org. In fact, if you lead a corporate team, I suggest you look into a corporate membership so the whole team can benefit. Now, on to Nicole Cox of OnTrack. OnTrack is a leading AI-powered, telehealth-enabled, virtualized outpatient healthcare treatment company, which is a mouthful. Basically, they help you get and stay healthy, especially from the behavioral perspective. And up until a few days ago, they were called Catasys. They just went through a name change, actually just after I finished the recording with Nicole. So you're probably going to hear some references to the older company name, Catasys, in our discussion. And when you do, just replace it with OnTrack, if you wouldn't mind helping me out there. Other than that, everything remains the same. And I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation that we had. So without any further delay, here she comes, Nicole Cox of OnTrack. So Nicole comes to the role with a wealth of recruiting experience across several industries, but really with an emphasis on healthcare and biotech. And what I think is especially interesting is that she has spent the majority of her career on the staffing and RPO side and is now in a corporate TA leader role. So we're going to have some fun today talking about what's shaped her perspectives on all things TA and leadership and how that's playing out in her new big role. So we are an artificial intelligence and technology-enabled healthcare company, and our mission is to help improve the health and save the lives of as many people as possible. Our vision as a company is to become the lowest cost provider of the highest value delivery system in healthcare services. So what does that really mean? Our customer is the healthcare plan, and we partner with them to, we gather their member data, we analyze that data, to see which of those members we can support and impact the most. Then we reach out to them to see if they would like to enroll in our programs. If they do enroll, then we are partnering them with a care coach that works with them on uh, for 52 weeks. It's a coaching program where they are working with them on things like anxiety, stress, depression, healthy living, pain management, weight management, substance use, those kinds of things to really help them modify their behaviors. That impacts 
not only their health, but also the healthcare spend. So you're paid by the healthcare provider, the insurance provider, and right. their objective is to um, ultimately have lower costs on the basis of people being more healthy. What does the coach do in the case of someone taking you up on the offer? The coach works with a team. They may pull in, it really depends on that individual's needs. They may pull in a psychiatrist, a counselor, a registered dietitian, and we also look at community resources and what we can do to help that individual with their untreated, um, like I said, anxiety, stress, or depression, and chronic medical conditions. We really want to help just change that behavior. The control is all in the members' hands, but our coach is there to guide them along the way, be a resource, set those goals uh, over a year span. Super interesting. And the roles that you're hiring for are across the board in terms of corporate roles, but also those those delivery, the delivery arm, I would imagine, is people with healthcare backgrounds, behavioral psychologists, counselors. Is that right? Our company's grown a lot. We went from 200 to 400 employees last year. This year, we're going to exceed um, 700 employees. And the, we have two main roles that we're always hiring in, in volume due to growth. One is our member engagement specialist. That's the position where they are reaching out to those members to see if they want to enroll in our programs, helping them understand that we come along with their healthcare plan. Then our care coaches are nurses or certified healthcare coaches um, with very you know, specific training to help with behavioral health. We also provide a lot of training once they're here and that training is ongoing. The other types of roles are a lot of digital technology, compliance, network, uh, types of roles. So uh, the other nice thing is that we get to pick the top talent because although we have a corporate office in Santa Monica, 95% of our staff is distributed all across the U.S. So again, it gives us the opportunity to, to really hire great talent. Okay. So the virtual working thing has not been really disruptive to your company. You're already uh, supporting people yeah. working virtually. Okay. We are supporting people virtually and have been, it's, it's by design for us. Uh, with COVID, the biggest challenge that we had, you know, where so many other companies were going remote, they were buying up a lot of computers. So that was an impact, plus all the schools um, across the country deciding to you know, educate from home. That meant just a shortage across the country for yeah. computers. Tell us a little more about the leadership team. So if you've got a company of 400 people, I'm guessing it's uh, reasonably small leadership team. To whom do you report and how is that structured? Yeah, I report to the VP of HR who reports to our CFO. And we have great leaders in our departments. We, If you go to our website, you'd see 19 different leaders. And that's because we have very specific departments from technology to provider networks. So again, just great leaders, but there are about 19 uh, different okay. department departments. Great. Leaders. So that is a reasonably large constituency then in terms of mm -hmm. basically all those 19 people need your help, I would imagine. They do, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, they are my stakeholders and yeah. customers. Not all of them do volume hiring. Just a few more numbers here. How big is your team? And if you can I, give us a sense of your budget. Sure. Um, budget is very fluid right now because we are actually saving money because we brought talent acquisition in-house as a core competency. Um, so I don't have a set budget, although I'm really driving costs down for the organization. 
My team right now, I have seven recruiters, and that is pretty new for the organization. Before I came on board, they used firms for most of their hiring, or the hiring managers were doing their own heavy lifting on their positions. And they had some contract recruiters kind of come and go, but this is the first time they've really had a fully dedicated talent acquisition department. Okay. And you said you've gone from 200 to 400. Um, what, what's in the projections for the next year or two? Yeah, we expect to continue that type of trajectory. We've already filled almost 400 positions this year, and we expect probably that same amount going through. We, we continue to forecast because it depends on member enrollment and how many health plans uh, that we add and the expansion of those health plan- plans across the country. So we're continuously forecasting those needs. Um, so, but you joined Catasys last August. So you're just coming up on a year. Is that right? Right. And, that is correct. Um, so tell me what you walked into. What were the primary challenges you were brought on to handle? And how's that going? I think it's going really well. The hiring managers were very welcoming for the support because they had been doing it on their own with some adjustment, you know, coming in and putting together the talent acquisition uh, requisition approval process and putting in some structure to their interviews. Some departments had already done that because they had worked with their uh, previous recruiting partners to do that. But I came in and did that more for other departments. Uh, we did more behavioral training, behavioral interview training across the organization. So I came in to do some things that they had never had done before, uh, designing and executing recruiting strategies, communicating those strategies, you know, workforce planning with department heads and finance, vendor selection, because we still do utilize vendors, but they had no one reporting metrics or, or even deciding what the metrics should be to report on. They had no one overseeing employment branding. That's probably the biggest piece, is the biggest challenge, I should say, is just getting some momentum on that employment branding. But stakeholder management, you know, succession planning, sourcing channels, they didn't have anybody. So it was really starting fresh for them here. Have you been able to accomplish some of what you've hoped? I mean, all that that you just listed, that's like years and years worth of effort. So <laughs> what, what did yeah, you do first? Think, yeah, the first thing I did was I developed the town acquisition requisition approval process in partnership with the VP of HR and finance, and then started just really getting in and getting to know the different department heads, understanding their needs, their structure, you know, what's worked for them in the past. And then I started building my team and coaching them on how to, what I call design what you want or deal with what you get. So if you spend a little more time up front you know, kind of designing what you want, what you want the end outcome to be, then things happen. Actually, a phrase from my previous boss. It's one that I've kind of lived and breathed by since uh, for the last 16 years. Yeah, that's awesome. It's uh, re- sort of similar to the go fast, go slow to go fast kind of a thing. Right. And and is it mainly in designing processes or mainly in interacting with customers or both? I think it's all the way around. I mean, if you know, if you're implementing a new process, you want to spend the time up front. Uh, I've done this with technology, building, you know, recruiting technology. You spend that time up front really outlining what you want, the framework, and what the end result needs to be. But we do that position by position as well, spending that time up front with our hiring managers and really going beyond that job description and doing a deep dive into what's really important, what's going to be the 
the coronavirus has affected pretty much all businesses. What, if any, impact or what's been the main impact you've seen from coronavirus? So I think we're a very fortunate company where we have been able to grow, to grow through COVID. Um, again, we're helping people with anxiety, stress, and depression, and that has been on the rise uh, in addition to other um, health issues. So we're there to be a resource for that. And the biggest impact we had was com- computer impact that I mentioned earlier that we have been working from home for years. It's just the nature of what we do it's by design. But at the same time, every other company going out there and schools going out there, that was our biggest challenge is just we need to hire, but we don't have the equipment for them yet. So we had to kind of pace ourselves a bit. But we overcame that. We really came together collectively as an organization. I think we had great leadership through all of that, found ways to kind of support each other if anybody needed to be out on medical leave or you know, postponing some start dates because people needed to help family members with their illnesses or childcare or things like that. So I think we were very flexible and uh, thoughtful in the way that we approached it. So tell us about your educational journey. Do you think it was worth the time and money to get the master's, especially considering what you're doing today? I do, actually. I think that it was really critical for my continued success. I think of myself as a continuous learner And I looked at MBA programs. I thought initially that's what I wanted to do was get that, you know, strength on that finance side. But my, when I thought about my future, I started comparing some different programs. I'm not really finance focused, although I manage budgets and have had P&L responsibilities throughout my career. I really have a passion for strong leadership. And so when I found that master's program at Gonzaga, it just made so much sense. And as soon as I started taking courses, I was able to put that learning into action, course by course by course, the finding more creative solutions, a more global perspective. It was remote learning. So not only did I learn remotely, but it helped me kind of look at how we did training at my prior company and how to engage those remote learners. But I was in classes with people on the front lines of uh, in the military, you know, somebody in a su- submarine, different countries. And so it really gave me a more global perspective. And really the, the training that I had in that program helped me with change management as Decision Toolbox started to grow. And then eventually they went through acquisition. Then that helped me with that change management as well. And that helped me even here as this company's grown and getting to know some of the employees here and helping them kind of overcome some of the pains that naturally come with growth. Let's talk about what makes a good recruiter. You've hired a bunch of people, you've led a bunch of people, you've done this for decades, and you were the chief talent officer as well as an operations leader at Engage to Excel So and Decision Toolbox before that. So how did that work? What, what's your view of what it takes to be a really great recruiter? If you're thinking about it from a talent management perspective. Yeah. So at Engage to Excel, I was very much internal and external. So I was team performance management internally and externally assisting a lot with not even assisting. At times I, I was that escalation point for clients or part of that implementation that started to change um, in the past, the latter part of my tenure there, that some of the department shifted over to the president of the organization. 
as we were trying to uh, continue to grow that. Some of the things that I look for in a recruiter are people who are passionate about providing outstanding experiences to customers and candidates. I never want to leave anybody sitting in the dark. I've been that candidate who sat down on a Friday evening and your whole family's asking you what's the latest on your job search. And when you don't have anything to say, that's an awkward position to leave anybody sitting in. So that's something that that's a quality that I look for in recruiters is someone who has that passion for that follow-up and that good experience to everyone. The ability to leverage technology to create efficiencies, whether that's scheduling links or building preliminary questions, sourcing techniques. A good recruiter is always curious. They're always probing for more information. And then client posture, someone who believes and is confident that they are that subject matter expert. They take an advisory posture. They are listening and responding to what's being asked. And they anticipate what's needed and going to be asked. So always asking for that feedback. I like the curiosity point. I I would agree. Yeah. You know, uh, curious recruiter is a good recruiter. That's right. They're always digging for something, right? They want to learn. They want to dive deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it allows them then to create a customized approach for the candidate. So to that point, candidate experience is something I know that you have delved into in the past. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious to know what your current view is, especially with regard to the talent board and the Candy Award experience. Are, is uh, Catasys planning on applying for that? Or what, what are you thinking about? I think our process in our department is it's too early for us to participate. Uh, I do think that the talent board, the Candy Awards, has a nice objective approach. It's also easy process to apply, and doesn't. It's not a huge time commitment on employers or their candidates. So I like all that process, but I just think that we're too new to do that. Our department is too new. We know that we need a new applicant tracking system, so we're going out to RSP for that. And that will help us provide much better candidate experience. But we do customer satisfaction and candidate satisfaction surveys to make sure that we are on top of things and making some changes where we need to. Every recruiter that I bring on board knows my commitment, and therefore it's their commitment, that they provide a really great experience to candidates, not leaving them in the dark. That follow-up is really important. Uh, it will set us apart as uh, from a brand experience. So. so you have a no black holes philosophy. So it's a good goal, a lofty goal. I would love to be able to think in the teams I've led that it was 100% of the time there were no black holes. It's it's so hard though, isn't it? So variable it and it individual. Agreed. Yeah, but I, I think that's uh, it's a good thing that you keep that on the four. In addition to the talent board, there are a bunch of really great resources out there, professional associations like ERE, RPOA, um, ATAP, the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals. Where do you find resources, your best learning? Who do you reach out to when it's time for you to learn something about what's going on in TA? Yeah, so I I am part of, I live in Austin, so I'm part of the Austin Recruiter Network. Just participating in those discussions, I have also built a really solid network of whether it's consultants or CHROs, uh, previous leaders. 
so that I can brainstorm with them. I think that's really important, especially for someone who is kind of a siloed department. Uh, you're expected to, and especially a new department, you are expected to be that subject matter expert. But I've always found it important, whether it's sitting on, previously I sat in on uh, C-suite executive roundtables, where, you know, you're hearing other challenges that businesses face and different approaches to those challenges. Just, again, maintaining that network and leaning on that network when you're facing challenges and also being available to that network to help them with theirs. Because I just think that we sharpen each other and learn from each other's mistakes and wins and losses. You mentioned being in Austin, Texas. I also live there. And uh, I'm just wondering what brought you there because, you know, your company is not there. So was that a personal move or or what? It was a personal move. Uh, Every time I traveled somewhere, uh, I've lived in Southern California for over 20 years. And every time I traveled, I was looking to see, you know, would that be a fit? I, I visited Austin twice and fell in love with Hill Country. And I am also an empty nester, so it gave me the opportunity to come out and make really great friends. There's so many new people in the Austin area that it's easy to meet new people. And there's so much to do. We're outdoorsy, kayaking and bike riding and things like that. So it's a great place to be. I love it. And uh, shout out to the ARN. I also am a member of that. Terrific group of recruiters who really, really want to support. So um, that's terrific. If uh, you're in Austin and you are on Facebook, you can reach out to Brian Chaney and see if you can get added to that group. It's, it's just a great group. Nicole, what are your thoughts about search firm relationships? Uh, I'm aware that, you know, at least a few of my listeners are headhunters and they're always trying to get more insights into how a head of talent acquisition thinks about their, you know, product, their process. What would you tell them? Yeah, I think that because of my background and exposure to really great clients and not so great clients, that my perspective might be a little bit different. I believe outsourced partnerships are necessary when you're in a company that's scaling. You certainly want most of your hires to be from your internal team, but having someone come in to augment and support that is really uh, helpful. A TA leader role is to also help your team understand that they're not a threat. They are a partner and they're there to help all of us be more successful and reach our company financial goals. I believe in talent acquisition partnering in a strong way with their outsourced partners to give them all the information that they need to be successful and kind of grow and develop them because they learn from their candidates that don't make it forward. But I think that we have to select wisely. Good partners, in my mind, are really willing to work together, uh, take the feedback, adjust to it. I actually pull my vendors together on calls to download them, update them on business changes, improving their profile, and giving them examples of of a solid profile. Again, from my experience, that's how the most successful relationships are handled. The talent acquisition leader, their cost per hire is very important, not just to the company, but to them and their, their. And think about who your competition is. In my background, I never viewed other agencies as the competition, but it was that internal talent acquisition. An average cost per hire for internal 
talent acquisition is about $4,000 or less. It's reduced if you're looking at high volume because it kind of turns into a machine. So your competing rate is their internal cost per hire rate. So if you really want to win that business, then think about if you make your client healthier through decrease, decreased pricing while maintaining that high quality service, then you're vol- for for some companies. I understand that you can't adjust your your rates, and that's a decision to make, right? What we certainly don't want to devalue any firm by driving down their prices, but just looking at again. Do you want a single hire at a big rate or do you want continuous repeat business at that lower rate where you are making that company healthier? Let's uh, pivot here a little bit. I want to talk about the concept of being a good corporate citizen, giving back. Not sure if you heard um, a couple of recent podcasts with Katrina Collier and then Kelly Shoemaker, the topic of servant leadership and giving back came up. And I saw Mm -hmm. on your LinkedIn profile that at some point, you had received a certificate of servant leadership. Can you tell my listeners about that? I did. I did receive that and happy to talk about it. So it was part of my master's program at Gonzaga. There's certain courses that you take that help improve your emotional intelligence, your interpersonal communication skills. But throughout my education at Gonzaga for my master's, it was about engaging cultures, leading by example, encouraging collaboration, and really caring for the individual. I don't think that servant leadership stands alone by itself. I think that depending on the leader and depending on the needs of the organization that they're part of, that it may blend with transformational leadership, you know, where you're helping them see the the big picture and tie their purpose. So caring for that individual and what matters to them and tying that to the, the organization's purpose and meeting people where they are. Again, throughout my my training there at Gonzaga, it was Robert Greenleaf, uh, who was the AT&T leader in the 1970s, that put out that first book on servant leadership. It has just been really beneficial throughout my career, helping people make changes, that leadership justice and forgiveness. It helped in talent acquisition a great deal because it's about diverse teams. A lot of the servant leader education that I received was books about Nelson Mandela's role in South Africa's apartheid and that healing, the forgiveness, accountability. And at first I struggled with, you know, how do I relate that to the workforce, right? It's apartheid, but it's so relative. It helps me speak a little bit more to diverse teams. I'm not an expert, but continuous learner on this topic. Speaking of the importance of diversity to teams, designing skill-based job descriptions and qualifying tools and doing implicit bias training. So all of that kind of goes hand in hand with that servant leadership training that I had. I'm guessing you get a number of people asking for your advice, career advice, maybe, you know, you mentor some people or have in your career. What would you say is the best advice you would give to an ambitious recruiter who thinks they someday want to be a talent acquisition leader? Yeah, I do get those kinds of questions on a pretty regular basis, whether it's people internally, sometimes people on LinkedIn are reaching out, uh, friends are, are reaching out. Anybody looking to grow their talent acquisition career, it's listening, observing, partnering up with some really good mentors, and continuously asking for feedback and, and how to improve, whether it's a customer or your boss or candidates. When we ask 
that question, and this is a, a lesson to me by my, my previous boss, was you know, when you ask for that feedback, the guards come down. People don't feel like they have to go around you to give feedback to somebody else for that then to be transferred to you. It opens up that partnership, and you can learn so much more, even when they say, oh, everything's great. Okay, if that changes, please let me know what I can do differently. The, the topic is always open so that you can continue to learn and adjust to customers' needs and just put yourself in a position where you're always learning. You, know, you can take some online courses, getting with your network, building a good network, and a strong mentor. And I think it's just a continuous uh, part. Be willing to take on new responsibilities and step up to those challenges. Because that's when you make mistakes in those new new steps and getting out of your comfort zone, then that's where a lot of growth comes from. Taking risks, putting yourself out there, making mistakes. Speaking of mistakes, I, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be big fish in the talent pool if I didn't ask. Is there a mistake in your career at any point that you learned a, a big lesson from that you'd be willing to share? Sure. It, it's pretty early in my career. I've certainly made mistakes from then, uh, since then. But the company that I came from, Decision Toolbox, was a company that really awarded mistakes because we all learned from them. Process improvement came from it. Personal growth came from it. Systems improvements came from, you know, people making mistakes. And it created a really transparent culture, which was important in a remote environment where it's important in any environment, but that transparency when someone's not afraid to say, hey, I made a mistake or I fell asleep at the wheel on this position, bringing that up in a forthcoming way helps leaders get in front of client concerns and, and such. Where my biggest lesson came from on that was early in my career at Decision Toolbox, I was, I think, the only recruiter in that very beginning. And I was working on some positions that were they were RF engineers, and they were a different type of RF engineer than I had worked on in telecom. And they were beyond, I, I wasn't asking enough questions. And I provided a, a list of all the avenues I was taking to you know, find talent. And the owner of the company walked into the client ready to have my back. And when they started digging into the details, she stood there with egg on her face because there were some things that I wasn't doing because I didn't understand the job enough. I didn't ask enough questions and didn't ask an, enough questions from the right people. So she stood there with egg on her face when she was willing to just have my back on these positions. And we lost that client. And my boss stood there, like I said, with egg on her face. And I never put her in that position again. And I share that story, making myself a little vulnerable, I, I share that story with new recruiters that I bring on board because I want them to know that I've certainly made mistakes and my posture about mistakes. And that helps them, I think, feel a little more comfortable bringing them to me. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it is very transparent. <laughs> I, I have to dig in a little bit, though, the fact that she had A on her face and that made you feel bad, it sounds like. Um, not everyone would have that self-awareness, though. Some people might just kind of let the boss take it because that's what bosses have to do. How did you really own that, or how did you interact with her that brought you to that point? Well, I was pretty new in my job. You know, you want to please people when you first start working for them. But I also have, I've done assessments on myself, and there's one called Strength Finders. I, I lean on it pretty hard. I took my whole team through it previously, but it's 
one of my core themes, uh, if you're not familiar with Skills Finder, it's checking your top five themes. And one of my top five themes is responsibility. So when I am tied to something, I'm very responsible for it. And I, I really own that. So that's where that you know, humility and responsibility over how what the position I put her in, I felt really poorly about yeah. myself, my own work. Well, we're about out of time, Nicole, but is there anything else you'd like future recruiting leaders to know about what it's like to stand in your shoes? Future talent leaders or current talent leaders, leveraging your network, building a network if you don't have it, because that will sharpen your skills and be available to them because that will also sharpen your skills Mm -hmm. and get into the data. There's so much talk around big data, data analytics, but if you're hesitant in in digging into that data, step into that uncomfortable space and understand the data because there's a story in it that will help you perform better and help you serve your organizations better. And then again, just remember the theme of design what you want or deal with what you get in all that you do. I love it. Design what you want or deal with what you get. I think that's going to make a really nice headline for our uh, conversation today. So thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you when we can all meet together again someday at an ARN meeting in Austin. As do I. Thank you so much for your time today. All right. Thank you. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Erin directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Erin on Twitter at Erin McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.